Well, we're looking at practical Christian living, and that is in particular the area of sanctification. So justification is when you believe your name's written in the book of life, the Holy Spirit comes into you, you have passed from death to life, you shall not perish, you shall have everlasting life, you're saved, born again, justification. Now you say, well, what do I do? Well, if you're the thief on the cross, you die and you go to be with the Lord in heaven. But if you got to live past <laughs> getting born again, then it's sanctification. Now, this process is already completed by Christ in heaven. The moment we leave this body, we awaken with Jesus stroking our face, saying, wake up, wake up, and, and we look at Jesus, and then above his shoulder is all of those who have died that are our loved ones. There's my dad, and and there's my son, and hey, Dad, hey, good day, we're in heaven, you know, and we'll, we'll be sanctified. We'll be exactly perfect as Jesus is perfect. So that is happening. So really, we're talking about the time after you believe to the time you go to be with the Lord. And that time period is sanctification, where we bear good fruit, where we become disciples, where we get rewards in heaven, where we have the opportunity, if we are willing to be a disciple, to get some talents from the Lord, some one, some five, some ten, and, and we can see if we're going to rule and reign with him or not. So not everybody who believes becomes a disciple. There are people that believe and and. They, they receive the Lord and, and they go back to wherever they're from. Maybe it's a non-Christian country uh, predominantly and they, they can't find Christians. And of course, now with the internet, it's sort of hard to say that anymore. Or maybe they are just in a world of drugs or they're in a world of gangs or, or they, they go through a difficult physical time. They got born again and then got in a car wreck and for the next five years, they're, they're struggling physically, trying to get back literally walking and thinking straight. There's different reasons, but we who are in the church, we, we don't want to fall short of being a disciple and bearing good fruit, storing up our treasure in heaven. And then whatever we do, there'll be this special glory with it. Men will just, they'll see our good works and not just say, oh, he's a good man. No, no, no. They'll see our good works and they'll know oh, it's because God is in him. And they'll glorify our Father in heaven by what we say and what we do will be a light and a salt. Now, we can't really just jump in to verse 6 and start talking today because the first two steps are essentially important. In Colossians chapter 3, those first four verses there once again, if you have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And of course, for us as believers, if we are alive and remain, that's to be raptured with the Lord and we'll appear with them in the sky. Uh, in glory. And, and then also when we return after the seven-year tribulation period, we'll all get on horses along with Jesus and leave heaven and come to earth on a flying horse and land on the Mount of Olives. And we'll appear with him in glory at that time. 
And then, of course, through the millennial period, those who have become disciples will actually rule and reign with Christ, will be kings and priests unto our God. If we um, are living a sanctified life now, if not, I don't know, we'll be alive and on the earth, but not in that position, not that, that glorious position. And so he says, man, it's about heaven. It's about eternity. It, it's not about the earth. If God really loved me, I'd have a nice, nicer house than I have, or I'd own a house, or I would have a, you know, not this measly 1,200 square feet, but I'd have a 5,000 square foot house if God really loved me. Hey, you know what? God's going to give you a mansion in heaven. So who cares? We're just pilgrims and strangers here. I'm sleeping here. I'm sleeping there. I sleep on the floor tonight. I sleep on the bed tonight. I'm 20 miles away and I'm sleeping in the woods. Who cares? The earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. And you are possessor of all things because you're the king's kids. So it's okay if I don't get my cake now. We're getting our cake in heaven, right? So that's where we really need to understand, first of all, the first step in sanctification is it's about not rewards on this earth. It's about rewards in heaven. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? Naked we came in this world, and what? Naked we go out. We took, brought some, nothing in, and we'll take nothing out. So, you know, the Bible tells us that in the new heavens, the asphalt, the streets are gold. So it's, oh man, look at my gold. Oh, you got asphalt on your hand. Oh, no, that's my wedding ring. Oh, it's asphalt. Heavenly asphalt. But again, it's our mind. Oh, diamonds. Until the De Beers marketing campaign in 1924, nobody cared about diamonds. But boy, what a, the, the greatest marketing campaign ever, where they basically, not a part of the world, convinced the entire world, you're not really officially married till you got a diamond. Crazy, isn't it? And now I think there's more diamonds than there probably are pebbles on the sea, but they're hiding them and keeping them not very dispersed because they're trying to keep the value up high. That's just, you know... The fact is, is what is a diamond? Why is it greater than an emerald? Why is it greater than anything else? It's because we've been convinced of that. A dollar bill, it's just a piece of paper. The only reason it has any value because we're all agreeing it has value. Okay? Well, not everybody. The president doesn't. But (laughs) outside of Washington, D.C., the rest of us. So... The fact is, is that the earth stuff, guys, it's not going to fulfill you. It's not going to make you happy. You can be the most popular comedian, the most beloved actor who has your house, you know, there in Malibu on the beach, and you kill yourself because you're so unhappy. Yes, we need to get our mind and live for heaven. Think about heaven Think about the Lord at the right hand. And what is he doing? He's sitting there. The priest in the temple could never sit down because there's always another sacrifice. But here when Jesus, our high priest, sits down, why? Because it is 
finished. There's no more work to be done. This is why when we get our eyes on the things above and we see Christ sitting at the right hand of God, the work is finished. So we understand as I'm walking in sanctification, I'm not trying to become victorious. I'm already victorious. I'm already seated in heavenly places with Christ, according to the Bible. So I'm not fighting for victory. I'm fighting from victory. And that's so important. All of us are going to be entirely sanctified when we get our new bodies with the Lord in heaven. So it's a matter of now taking this sinful body and living in a sanctified life in a total, wretched, sinful body. As hard as that is. And again, it's finished. We're, it's, we're already victorious. Remember Hebrews 10.10. 10. By that will we have been sanctified. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. How, how often? Once for all. Do you hear that? Hebrews 10.10 10 says we've already been sanctified. Well, how did it happen? At the same way we got justified on the cross. Jesus on the cross not only paid for our sins and justified us, he also on the cross completed sanctification for us. He says basically the same thing in Hebrews 10.14. For by one offering, he's already perfected forever justification. Those who are being, are in the process of being sanctified. What is he saying here? We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. We already have victory. Is God for us or against us? <laughs> Can anything separate us from the love of God? Well, we know the things of the past can't. What about things of the present? What about things of the future? Nothing can separate us from that love of God. He's finished it. He's got us. We're his. We're already holy, setting in heavenly places in his sight. Remember Colossians 1.13. Remember that? We, we did that a few weeks ago, a few months ago. Um, he has, past tense, delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us, past tense, into the kingdom of the son of his love. It's already been done. We've already been delivered from what darkness? This world's darkness, yes. Satan's darkness, yes. Our own body of darkness, yes. He's already, he's already won over our bodies as well. And he's conveyed us now into the son of his love. Right now, yes, right now or two or three are gathered in his name, he's here with us in our midst. In heaven, we're sitting with him in heavenly places. So this is important. Now verse five is what we looked at last week. Therefore put to death your members. What members? My hands, my foot? No, no, no. These members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. So he, in essence, says when it comes to sex and the area of sex, you say, well, he didn't talk about that. He didn't talk about that. He didn't talk about that. He gives all of these various words to say, look, in sexuality, there's, there's only one place, and that's in marriage. Any sexuality outside of the marriage bed, put it to death. 
Don't wound it. Don't tie it up and throw it in the closet. You know, years and years ago, I heard a pastor talking, uh, telling a story about how a, a couple has a python in their house, their pet, and how it crawled out and got into their kid's bed, and they heard the noise, and they went in there, and it was starting to swallow their kid. And I thought, well, that's, that's, that's horrific. Let me go Google that. And you know, I Googled that, and there was dozens of these stories. It's like there's one a year at least. In many of the cases, cases they, they go in there and the baby's half digested inside their, their pet python. But their, their rationale is keep it fed a lot and they're docile. But you know how we are. We forget to feed the animals sometimes, don't we? And we think, oh, she did it. No, he did it. Oh, it got done. And all of a sudden that python just taken over its wild ways looks for something to eat, and ends up being the baby. And, and this is what I'm saying. When it comes to the area of sexuality, you can't tame it. You can't put it inside an aquarium and pacify it by keeping it somewhat fed. It's got to die. And this is what we looked at last week. So we've already died with Christ through his death, through his burial through his resurrection. We were with him. We talked about this in Romans 6. And so now we have the ability to put to death. Because we've died with Christ, we have the ability to put to death. Remember Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that the old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, with that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So the power of sin is condemned. It has no more fear of judgment. It has no more power to condemn us. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. But let me say something here, because we still struggle, don't we? We say, man, I put that to death, but I'm still struggling. That's, that's our story until we leave this body, until we leave these bodies. You know, we'll be 98 years old and laying in a bed with a little sheet on it in the hospital, getting angry at the lady for not getting the water quick enough. You know, and we'll be there confessing our sin at, you know, no ability to move hardly, but yet we're still in this sinful body. So we need to remember two important verses. First John 1, 9, you guys know this, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. The fact is you're, you're feeling guilty or you're feeling sorry or you're feeling sad about one sin you remember, but there's a hundred sins that the Lord didn't bring to mind because you'd probably do like Judas did and go out and kill yourself. So you, you grieved over one thing, but there's a lot of unrighteousness that we're not even aware of. In 1 John 2, 1 and 2, my little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the whole world. So as we struggle with sin, I don't want to sin, but I did. As we come to the Father and, oh, Father, forgive me through your son's cross and his death and his burial and resurrection through the blood that he shed. He's saying, as you do that, don't take that joy and that peace and hide it under your bed. Take it out and let the world know. <laughs> I'm forgiven daily 
Jesus loves me daily. Jesus has accepted me even though I'm a leper. I'm a sinner. He loves on me and he can love on you. And yes, you are a sinner, but no matter what your sins are, he's paid for them. No matter how addicted or ugly or dark or deep, come to Christ. All your sins have been forgiven in him. And I experience that joy daily, right? So also keep this in mind <laughs> before we move on to verse six. We, we learned in verse five that sanctification is putting to death this area of sexual sin. We, we, many passages we read, but remember 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 4, because it really gets the balance just right. It really does. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort to the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you received us from us how you ought to walk and please God. Not how you ought to walk so you don't lose your salvation. <laughs> how you ought to walk and please God so God doesn't condemn you. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, hey, you got a relationship here and you should cherish that relationship. And, and not only you enjoy that relationship, but Jesus should enjoy that relationship. We need to keep that in mind, right? For you know, he goes on in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 2, for you know what commands that we have gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, that is our body, in sanctification and honor. So it's a little different for everybody. One person has to say, this causes me to, to, to sin or causes me to get my sexual passion stirred up, so I'm staying away from that. And for another, they can do it. And, and it doesn't stir up their sexual passions. He goes on to say, though, if that overwhelms you, don't stop there. Read on in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 to 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also, what? Will do it. So now he says, don't forget, Christ has done it all already. He's completed it. And not just in your body, because that's mainly what we're bummed about, right? Our spirit's born again. Our soul has been circumcised. The Holy Spirit lives in us. It's really about our body. But he says, hey, Jesus has already accomplished it. Spirit, soul, and body. And there it says, in that passage, it says himself, the God of peace himself. It literally in the Greek, it's by himself without anybody else's help or addition to it. But then he goes on to say, he who calls you is faithful, he will do it. I love that quote, without him, we can't. Without us, he won't. So sanctification on this earth is a joint cooperation with Jesus or the Holy Spirit and us working together. Another important point before we move on is we need to remember what we learned there in those first four verses that we are one in Christ. He's our friend, our brother, our shepherd, our savior, our husband to the church, right? Remember Hebrews 2.11, for both he who sanctifies and the one who is being sanctified. Let me say that again, Hebrews 2.11. Both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all what? 
one. That's why this is the reason he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call us, to call them brethren. Because we are equal in righteousness to him when we get our new bodies in heaven. But even right now, even though you're stumbling in your sanctification, even though you're not perfect in, in living for God without sin, he's not a, a, ashamed to come along right now and say, hey, this is my precious lamb. This is my precious brother. This is my precious child. And they are sitting with me in heavenly places. Perfect. May not look like it to you, but it looks like that to me. Isn't that the way it is? Child may get all bummed and about themselves and, and upset because they, you know, got a C minus and, and on their spelling test. And you're just looking at them going, you're the most wonderful child in the world. You are perfect. And they're looking at you going, you're, you're nuts. That's the way the Lord looks at us. Of course, John 17, we, we've quoted this so many times in this 2022. But Jesus praying for us as well as the apostles on earth, but all those who believe through their word, that we all may be one as you, Father, and me, and I, and you, that they all may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one, I and them, you and me, they may be made perfect in one. Remember 1 John four seventeen: as he is, so are we in this world. In Ephesians 5, 26 and 27, that he might sanctify. He's going to be the one doing it, cleansing us and washing us with the water of the word that he might present us to himself, a glorious church, not with having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and without blemish. So once again, we're not fighting for victory, but from victory. So what's that saying? I'm trying to live the sanctified life. I'm trying to walk as a disciple. I'm trying to deny myself and take up the cross and follow Jesus. I'm trying to put others first. I'm trying to live a life in the spirit with peace and joy and patience and kindness and goodness. And, and I've done a miserable job of being sanctified. And the Lord said, yep, it hasn't been your best day, but... Before you put your head on the pillow, I washed you. I cleansed you. So before you fall asleep tonight, realize that you did your part, but I did my part. And my part was making you entirely sanctified before you go into your sleep tonight. You're without blemish. You're perfect in my sight. Isn't this wonderful so the gift of salvation, justification is sure, but also the work of sanctification is sure. We remember that in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance, what? Incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. What's our part? Just believing through faith or salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Believing that what God says he will do. Again, John 10, 28 says, I give them eternal life, those sheep that believe in me, and they shall never perish. He's emphatic on that. Neither shall anyone snatch them 
out of the hand. So hey, now that we're done with the introduction, we can look at verse 6 through 9. That only took 30 minutes. Yeah, no big deal. Okay, <laughs> verse 6 through 9. So we have, number one, keeping our eyes on the Lord. When it comes to the sexual struggles and sanctification, put it to death. And now we come to verse 6 through 9. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourself once walked when you lived in them, but now you yourselves put off all of these anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man and his deeds. So first of all, verse 6, it says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So there, there's just a moment in time where we need to be sober-minded and realize some of the sins we did before we were saved, and yes, some of the sins we've done after we're saved. We are going to be there at the great white throne judgment when those who have not believed in the Lord are being condemned, and to what level they're being condemned into hell is going to be by their works. And Jesus is going to destroy a sinful work that they've done. And we're going to be standing over there going, I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. And I'm going to heaven. But yet, they're going into a deeper, hotter parse of hell for their same sin that you committed. He is not saying here that if you're doing these things, you better be afraid that you're going to go to hell. That, that is not what he's saying. I can't tell you how many Calvinists teach that this way. So if you are struggling with some sexual sin or with wrath or malice or anger, or, or then you, you know what? You may not have really believed with real saving faith and you may not be going to heaven, so you better be scared and quit living that way. That's what they're trying to convey. No, ridiculous. He's just simply saying, as he does in many of his books, People go to hell for these kind of sins that you are struggling with, that you have done, that maybe you're doing even now as a believer. Remember 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. In particular, fear involves torment or judgment or condemnation from God. But he who has fear has not been made perfect in love. And again, 1 Corinthians 13 says, hey, man, if you give your goods to feed the poor, you give your body to be burned, you live, the, you fight, man, I live the holiest life of anybody on earth. But yet it's not out of a heart of love to God. Right? If my wife says, Brian, if you don't start telling me you love me and start helping with the kids, and start cleaning the house and doing the dishes, I'm going to divorce you. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I had no idea it was that bad. You know, <laughs> okay. And now, every day, she's told me i got to tell her I love her five times. And so on Saturday, she has some friends over, and, and there I come in, I'm so sorry to bother you. I just got to tell you, I love you. I'm going to go do the dishes. <laughs> and her friends are looking at her going, oh, you have the most loving relationship. You have the most loving husband in the world. But yet, can she enjoy this? Does she really receive it? No. She's, she, she knows that 
because I'm doing it out of fear rather than love, it, it really means nothing to her. I wouldn't be doing it if she didn't threaten me. That's not going to do that. Same way if God threatens us and then we are obedient, there's no relationship there. And even though he might have got the correct actions out of you for a time, you haven't grown in your love relationship with the Lord. Well, moving on. So this verse is simply saying that the wrath of God is coming on non-believers. So it's incredibly humbling for us as believers to know that on the day of judgment upon unbelievers, that we will be condemned for many of the same sins <clears throat> that we also have committed. Therefore, we came to Christ, and also after we have come to Christ, we've struggled with these very sins that they'll be condemned. Number one, all men, all mankind, every one of us are worthy of condemnation. In Romans 3, he goes into great detail in verse 10 through 11. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understand. There's none who sees God. There's, and he goes on there. You know that passage. There's none righteous, no, not one. But yet in reality, we don't have to commit a bunch of sins to be condemned. James tells us we only need to commit one sin to be eternally damned in hell. In James 2.10, whoever shall keep the whole law but yet stumble in one point is guilty of all, right? If I've been a perfect citizen, I have no record with the police, and I just go rob one measly bank. I just, and I tell the police officer when he arrests me, I've been a perfect citizen. It's just this one little thing. Let's just let me go and forget all about it. No, I'm guilty of the whole law. The police are against me. The court systems are against me. I'll be put in prison. I'm guilty of the whole lot. Just one is all it takes. So there is, however, levels of condemnation. The Pharisees, for example, who were hypocrites and causing others to be hypocrites, Jesus said to them, therefore you will receive a greater condemnation. You're going to be in a hotter place in hell and uh, your, your uh, residence will be a little closer to Satan himself than others. So God's judgment is coming to all men. That should humble us. That should give us a fervency to share our faith. And just like when the angel of death passed over the houses that had the blood on them. Remember that? We're going to be studying that in Exodus. Where he says, tonight, all the firstborn are going to die of animals and people. Unless they have the blood applied to the door. And those that had the blood applied to the door did not die. In the same way, those who do not have the blood of Christ to forgive them of their sins, and by faith they've not received it, when the day of judgment comes, they will be condemned. Romans 1, 18 through 20, let the hair go back on the back up on your neck there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who surpasses the, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they have what? No excuse. They are without excuse. Just by creation itself is such a big, giant sign who God is, his Godhead, his holy nature, the Holy Spirit's in the world convicting all men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. There's, everybody has sufficient amount of movement through the design of creation and through the Holy Spirit in the world, through 
a conscience that he made every one of us have, there's not going to be somebody at the judgment seat of Christ going, well, I didn't know. I didn't know. I, I didn't understand that. You shouldn't, you shouldn't send me to hell because, uh, you know, I'm innocent because of, of not having enough information on the subject. Not true. So God is at this moment not full, fully pouring out his wrath. So it, that's why a lot of people don't repent because they sin and the earth doesn't open up and swallow them. They do a bunch of sins and I'm still wealthy. <laughs> I'm still healthy. And then they're living in this life of sin for 20 years and they're wealthier and famous and they got all the elite friends and high places. And, and man, I, yeah, my whole life living as a sinner has never been a curse against me, never been against me. I'm sure I'm on my fourth wife, but who isn't, you know? Um, and so we got to understand that. And that's why in Romans 2, verse 4 through 11, it says, do not despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, long-suffering. Do you not know that the goodness of God leads us to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent art, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation for the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. But to those who are of self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil for the Jew first and also for the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is no partiality with God. So on that day when justice comes, it'll probably be the first time planet Earth has ever seen true judgment, true justice. Because we can't. I mean, we take a, a horrible serial killer and we put him to death, give him a shot and put him to death. Did they, did they really, do, do we really have justice? No, we really don't. We need to torture them for a thousand years. So God can put true justice. And on that day, everybody's going to be shocked. We're all going to be going, whoa, when there's truly no partiality, when true justice is, a, is able to be melt out in, in the light that God has the power of eternity, we are going to be amazed. And of course, many of those people are going to be given a list of sins they've committed that are damning them to a deeper, darker, more tormented place. And we're going to be going, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that, I did that, I struggled with that, I went through 10 years. Of... And it is going to be a, a, a fearful thing for us to be standing before God when he is doling out judgment, whether that's to, as a white throne judgment to those who are being damned, or even on the Bema seat. I think that's also going to be an awesome moment of time. We see the final look at this. You get a little glimpse of this in Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, that's interesting, that's first on his list. I thought he would have said, you know, child molesters, but he doesn't. It's cowardly. Secondly, unbelieving. Abominable murders, sexually immoral. Sorcerers, which is pharmakias, which is the pharmacy. You know, that's how you get into witchcraft. That's how you open yourself up to demons through uh, pharmaceuticals often. 
idolatry and also liars. So last but not least, liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And it's upon all sons of disobedience. You say, well, I'm disobedient. I'm a liar sometimes. I try not to lie, but I do. I exaggerate. I, I add to the story. I, I leave out facts to make it sound better. Yeah, but what is the disobedient? Who are the disobedient? It's those who don't believe in the Messiah for forgiveness of sins. That's it. That 2 Thessalonians 2.10, it says, they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. John, the whole gospel of John chapter 3, I'm going to go on a lot of it here, but follow me if you would. Remember Jesus talking to Nicodemus in, in verses 3 through 7. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, well, how can I go back, uh, man go back and be born again into his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. So 100% of everybody got to earth by being born here through their mother. 100% of everybody in heaven is going to be there by being born. Not this, to a woman this time, a, a physical birth, but having been born by the Spirit of God coming into your life, circumcising that old sinful flesh, and, and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three living in us. Um, we are in Him and He is in us. And without that, spiritual birth, you will not go to heaven. In John 3, 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent of the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him, here it is again, should not perish but have everlasting life. So remember when they were getting bit by snakes, God said, get a pole and make a bronze serpent. Bronze is a medal of judgment. And put it on the pole. And when somebody gets bit, if they just look at the pole, they're, they're healed. And Jesus says, that's me. Because he who knew no sin became sin for us. And he was judged. The wrath of God fell on Jesus on the pole, so to speak, on the cross. Now we just look to Jesus and believe that he died on that cross, bearing our sins, pain, suffering, and dying for our sins immediately we are born again and have eternal life. This is why it says in John 3, 16, probably the most important verse in the whole Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. There it is again. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What's the difference between verse 15 and 16? It lets us know God the Father loves us. It's not out of, I have to. Well, I guess I got to save some of those stinking humans. Ooh, they creep me out. No, he, he loves us. And then, of course, in verse 17 through 18 of John 3, for God not have sent his son into the world to condemn the world. That's not the point. Christianity is not a religion about condemnation, but that the world through him might be saved. And so sometimes we need to talk about the condemnation in order to get people 
to sober up and listen to us. That their time on this earth may be shorter than they think. And if they die without having received the love of the truth, they will be damned. It goes on in verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. There it is. Who are the disobedient? Those who do not believe in him shall not be condemned. It's those who don't believe. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So he's already condemned because he hasn't believed. And then in John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Fact. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but what? The wrath of God abides on him. One more verse in John 5.24. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed, past tense, from death to life. It's already happened. So now in verse 7, he says, in which you yourself also once walked when you lived in them. So the Colossian Christians are saying, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Before I came to Christ, that's exactly how I lived in my sexual lust, in my anger. But now Paul says, no more. Not to say that we don't struggle always. That's what Romans 7 teaches us. And a lot of times people just leave the sinful life because it's exhausting them. They're tired of the frustration and the emptiness and the depression, the drudgery of it. But remember in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of who? Disobedience among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, were by nature children of wrath, just as others. Remember what he said? Those who don't believe, they're condemned already. We're all children of wrath. Every one is born in this world in a sinful condition in which we must be born a second time by the Spirit. And if we're not born by the second time, being born in this world as a sinner, we will die in eternity But again, let's not forget, that's not our condition, but God. But God, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. But God, Ephesians 2, 5 and 6, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today. You'll be with me in paradise. So with us, the moment we believe, we're seated together with Christ. Now in verse 8. Now you yourselves are to put off all these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Now we were just told in verse 5 concerning sexual sins to put them to death. And we looked and talked about the python living in the house, swallowing the baby, right? It's not something that you should have to wrestle with every day if you just say, no, that cannot be a part of my life whatsoever. 
listening to that, looking at that, going there, being a part of that, those friendships caused me to be sexually stirred up and, and, and then all of a sudden my flesh overtakes me and I end up in sin. Put it to death. Now he doesn't say that. He says put off or take off. Like dirty clothes, right? So what's the difference? I, I want to give you an analogy between putting to death and taking off. Putting off. So when our kids were all in school, there was a few years there, I do not know why, it was worldwide, I think, that lice was horrible. You guys remember that? And we were young, and we had four kids, and we weren't rich by any means, pastoring a, a growing church, and it didn't take a lot of money. And, and boy, you had to go down to the pharmacy, and it, man, just about bankrupted you getting that stuff. And then it just took hours to put it in their hair and comb it out and get every little egg out of their hair. And then two weeks later, you got to do it again. I remember we went thinking all the lice were gone to visit my brother and his family. And after we got there a couple of days, his wife pointed out, oh, our kids got lice. What about your kid? Oh, no. And he said, you know, Brian, it wouldn't be so bad, but we had some friends come Two weeks, ago to that, two weeks ago that visited us, and their kids had lice. And uh, I'm like, oh, that's horrible. you, you got to put to death the lice, right? All it takes is one little lice, and you're back in business with the lice. you got to put it to death. But when a child's learning how to potty train, you just change the diaper, right? It's not killing the baby. You know, I'm not going to kill the kid because that way I don't have to change diapers anymore. And so with these other areas, we, we, now really he's talking about the tongue, isn't he? He's talking about the mouth, the words we use. He's giving the list, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. All this is the mouth now. So he says when it comes to the mouth, you can't kill it. It'd be nice if you could kill it. If we could kill every part of our body and not sin anymore. But you, you really can't put to death because you got to talk. You need to tongue. You need to say words. So it's a matter of a process of potty training your mouth. <laughs> you got to potty train. And, and so you, you, you got to walk that. But let's not forget in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' son, what? Cleanses us from all sin. So even if we walk perfectly in the light as Jesus is in the light, we still need to put off, huh? Because he says, the blood of Christ still has got to cleanse you from all sin. So even when we try our best to, to make it through the day with a dry diaper, we typically got to get changed either way. We're just never going to get it perfectly so I'm not going to go into all of these. I have them in your note. You know what anger is, right? Smoldering bitterness. You know, you're, you're just, uh, you know, basically Scrooge. It's Christmas time, right? Scrooge. Don't be a Scrooge. James 1, verse 19 to 20 makes it clear. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And then wrath. This is this uh, Galatians 5, verse 19, uh, as it gives a list of works of the flesh, it says an outburst of wrath. It's like a volcano exploding. 
Are we called out today, don't be a Karen, right? <laughs> don't be a Scrooge. Don't be a Karen. And then malice, it's, it's somebody who literally rejoices in the destruction of somebody else. Did you hear so-and-so lost their job? All right. They got cancer. Good. Okay. There's something wrong with you. you you've got some real roots of bitterness in you. And then blasphemy towards God for sure. But also, if we say evil against another person, we're blaspheming one who's been made in the image of God. So you can blaspheme another human being. Did you know that? Again, by gossip and by saying negative things. I want you to think negatively about this person. Did you know that they got drunk last Friday night and almost gotten arrested? Oh, really? I didn't even know they drank. Well, you know now. <laughs> so the next time you see them, I want you to think less of them than you used to. You blasphemed. And so filthy language out of your mouth. I, I like what Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Of course, the Proverbs say, just don't talk very much. You could get the most foolish person on planet earth, and if he just sits there and says nothing, you'll think he's the wisest man on earth. And then, of course, Ecclesiastes says, God's in heaven, you're on earth, let your words be few. And then verse 9, as we wrap it up here, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. We, we, don't, we don't need to make an appearance of something greater than we are. So don't add to the story facts that aren't true. Don't take away facts that'll make you appear better. Don't exaggerate facts. Just Speak truth. Do you guys ever, do you know people without guile who just, whatever they tell you, you know it's always accurate? It's, it's healing, isn't it? And of course, there's some strong Proverbs on this. In Proverbs 6, verse 16 and 19, it says, Six things God hates, yea, the seventh is an abomination. That's bringing division. But the first six things, the very first one is a proud look. The second one on his list that God hates is a lying tongue. And then the second to the last thing is a false witness who speaks lies. So twice, so out of the six things that God hates, twice he mentions lying. In Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord for those who deal truthfully are his delight. So, so we know this is true, right? Satan is the beginner of lies. He's the father of lies. Jesus speaks only the truth. And therefore, when we hear the truth, it sets us free. When we speak the truth, we set people free. Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, put in away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And so, since you have put off this old man with its deeds. So it's not about reforming the old man. It's putting it off, getting rid of that old, dirty way of living. And we stumble with it daily. But the real answer is this, transformation, putting on. That's what we're going to look at next week in Colossians 3.10. Put on the new man, 
But what do we learn about that transformation? He tells us in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, I beseech you, I beg you, I'm on my knees begging you. Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We reason thus, if one died for all, then all should die for that one who died for us. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is a good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Don't, don't be conformed to this world. I had somebody last week, I said I'd mention it here today, is they came up afterwards because I talked about sexuality in our culture and how we're not to move with the culture, <laughs> defining our sexuality. We use the Bible for what's pure. And I mentioned how 30 years ago, homosexuality to everybody, even the most liberal of, of Democrats thought homosexuality was a sin, was horrible, was despicable. And I just remember saying, guys, according to the Bible, the last days are going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah, that if you're against homosexuality, you'll be the minority and you'll be evil. And people are just, that can't be true. So somebody came up and said, hey, you know what? I, I got to disagree with you on that because my, I can't remember what the relative was to them. He is the most wonderful person, but he, he was born a homosexual. God made him a homosexual, and I fully believe that he's supposed to be homosexual. And so my answer to them was, look, I, I, I can't argue, you know, so you, you're telling me that when they started feeling sexual, at 12 or 13, for whatever reason, they're they had same-sex attraction. Uh, their, their, their sexual feelings were towards the same sex. You know, I, let's say I, I, I have no problem with that. I don't believe God made them that way. But we're all born sinners. David says, right from the womb, I was born a sinner. So I, I think we're all bent. I think we're all born with some kind of bentness. You know, I've seen it. I've seen little kids, man. They are mean as heck. They were mean when they were crawling. They were mean at three, biting other kids and pulling out their hair. They were mean at eight. They were mean as a teenager. It's like their whole life, they just were born into this world angry, wanting to beat on people. I, I've seen people born into this world that just, their very first word was a lie. They keep telling lies as a child, as a teenager, in their adult life. There's, I've known them my whole life, and they've always been bent to always tell you something other than the truth. Sometimes about mundane things that really don't even matter. Yes, I, I, I think that I, I've been told by many men, because I actually worked for four years inside a prison, and I was over a yard where they put all the sexual molesters. Now, there were other people in there too, but that's mainly what was there. And I had a chapel service. I discipled these guys. A lot of these guys have gotten out and become pastors even. But all of them told me the moment sexuality came, the only thing that I was sexual towards were four-year-old girls or boys. When I was 12, I wanted to have sex with five-year-olds, when I was 15, when I was 25, when I was 35, when I was 55, that's the only thing that sexually arouses me is little children. So I, I was born that way. 
How can God judge me for it? Okay, do I, am I going to argue with them over that? That they, that they felt that way from the day? No, I'm not. I, I'm just saying, there's other guys that just say, man, I, ever since I, I, I've been married, all I want to do is have sex with anybody but my wife. You know, I want to have sex with my wife, but I also want to have sex with many different other women. I just think that that's, that's normal for me. So this whole thing about being married to one woman and not having sex with other women, it's just so unnatural for me not to have sex with other women. I've been told this. And they've, they've prayed about it and God gave them peace that that's okay. They've talked to their wife and they have an open marriage. It's okay. Okay. Again, am I saying that they were born that way to want to have sex with many different women? Maybe they were. I'm just saying all of us are born bent on something <laughs> that we all have to say, I, I've got to fight that bentness in me. So if they have same-sex attraction, well, the Bible says that's a sin. Yeah, I understand the culture now says we're evil for saying what God says. <laughs> and I'm just, Well, that's, that's your problem with you and your church. You, you, you want to say that homosexuals are sinners. No, I, I, I do not say that as any authority. Our church does not say that at any authority. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. God says, and he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now they try to twist the Bible and make it sound different than what it plainly says. So all I can, all I can say is that I also want to have wrong sex. Matter of fact, everybody I know wants to have wrong sex. I've not met a human being yet who hasn't confessed to God at some time a temptation or maybe something even done about wrong sex, whether that's fornication before they were married or whether that was adultery, why they were married, or maybe it was um, some weird sexual desire towards kids or some curiosity to have sex with somebody of the same sex or somebody wanting, you know, we all have, we're all bent. We're all sinners. But, but again, we talked about last week, the fire in the fireplace is wonderful, right? In marriage, God made it. He created sex. He created fire to be in the fireplace. But take the fire into the living room. You hurt yourself. You damage. You may kill other people. You may destroy. Bring fire into the living room or the kitchen or the bathroom. The fire's got to stay in the fireplace, in the same way, sex stays in marriage. Outside of that, the Bible says it's unique. It's unique from all other sins. All other sins are outside the body, but sexual sins are against yourself. You're against your own soul. Romans 1 says the penalty is within your own person. The penalty of the error is within themselves. There's a damage. So again, I said I'd bring that up and, and uh, try to clarify that. So I understand, guys. Un understand this. Understand this. Just like I said whew, 40 years ago, the day's going to come, and quickly, where if you are against homosexuality, you're the evil person in our society of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm saying to you right now, as hard as it is to imagine, that if you are against bestiality, you'll be the evil person. And I say it's going to come quickly. Where people, 
rationally explain to you their sexual relationship with their dog and why it's so wrong. Now, you guys are grimacing and cringing and you, you just want to throw up, get a throw up bag. 40 years ago, that's the way it was when I mentioned homosexuality. I literally mentioned it as blasé as I did today, and people left the church over it. I had guys ready to punch me out saying, my wife's been in the bathroom heaving ever since you mentioned the word homosexuality. Has no place in the church. They were that upset about it, and I'm talking it was four years where some of those same people that were grossed out by it were telling me I was evil for saying it's a sin. It wasn't, it wasn't like 20 years. It was in a couple of years. It went from the world turned upside down. Good was evil and evil was good. And I'm telling you, bestiality is identical. Because when you look at Romans 1 or you look at a fallen society, once they go into homosexuality, it says God takes away the barrier. He just opens the damn walls and the floods can come. And when homosexuality comes, then you, there's no resistance anymore to that society, so you just get all kinds of weird sexuality, exactly what we're seeing today, okay? So now, if a guy is wanting to, to say he's a girl and, and, and put on a dress and lipstick and maybe even have a sex change, ugh, you're horrible for not thinking that's wonderful. He's liberated. He finally has found freedom. I'm so glad he's in a country where he can truly be the person he wants to be. And now you have in a couple of states where they're saying if your five-year-old kid wants to transition and you don't help them, that's child abuse and they can take your kids away from you. That's happening in the United States right now. It's already happened in Europe, but it's happening right now. Where you're, Brian, pray for me. I think I'm going to lose my child because my child, after going to school, you know, my son wants to be a, a girl and, and, uh, they want me to start helping them transition. I said, absolutely not. And now they're taking my kid away from me. That's coming. This is the world we live in, guys. And, and the Bible says when we see ourselves coming into that generation to tighten up, to be sober-minded and watchful in your prayers because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Right? And so we, we do need to wake up. Well, that's sort of off the course here, but next week we'll be looking. So get your eyes on the Lord where he is sitting above. Put off or put to death the sexual aspects. Kill all the fires in the house, but the one in the fireplace. And now we got to learn. We got to keep changing. We got to keep taking off. Oh, that word was horrible. Ah, that was mean. That was untrue. Diaper change. Get rid of that. Change your diaper. Don't do that. Um, because again, God hates the liar. God hates, it's an abomination to speak such blasphemous things. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word today. And we thank you that your word is clear. And we know that society, especially the last day society, is going gonna, is gonna to be so upside down. <laughs> Just I love that in Acts where it said, here's Paul and Barnabas, the guys who turned our world upside down. Oh, let it be, Lord. Let it be, let revival come back to our land and let it be that the world gets turned up, really not upside down, but right side back up. But until then, let us as believers stand firm as a wall, as a light, as a salt to a wicked world. Not like Lot, even though his righteous soul is vexed every day, 
He blended right in. And his wife even loved it, even though it was sinful, and turned to a pillar of salt. His two daughters that left with him were total perverted, completely perverted. Lot alone was left to was the only righteous one, and he, he lost everything. Lord, let us, as we go into these last days, remember Lot's wife, and let us wake up to the times we're in that we do walk circumspectly as in the day and not in the night, putting on the full armor of God and waiting for your deliverance of our Lord. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen.